but we're a 24-7 society of folks. We're a society of people that want to be 3 o'clock in the morning people. What are 3 o'clock in the morning people? That's what I asked when I was new, and it was first phrased to me. What are those people? Who are those people, and how will I know who they are? And my sponsor said, just watch. Watch those people. They're the people who are going to come early and stay late. They're the people who are going to bring the casserole, the group anniversary. They're the people who are going to drive across town or across the county to pick up somebody that's new because they feel like if they got the call, it's their responsibility. Those people, the 3 o'clock in the morning people. And I don't believe that Alcoholics Anonymous in 2019 is fundamentally any different than it was in 1939. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, lords and ladies. That was the voice of Mr. Jimmy D that you heard at the beginning of this Sober Speak Live episode. And you're going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first, this episode is brought to you by Miss Amy Amy went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. She clicked on that little PayPal donate tab and made a contribution. Thank you so much, Amy, for your generosity. This episode is for you. All right. I will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. All right. So we had our big shindig. Sober Speak Live. And once again, I want to thank Grace Avenue United Methodist Church in Frisco for providing us the venue for this event. I'm going to get right into it in just a moment. Uh, You're going to be hearing also, just so you know, some fabulous music that was played during this event from both Wendy Child and Chrissy. And I'll be providing a link in the show notes to where you can find more of Wendy's music if you would like to. She is, uh, both of them are absolutely out of this world uh, talented. Uh, if you have any questions, feel feel free to reach out my way to John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com. Uh, this is by far the longest episode of Sober Speak I have ever released because it was a live event. And uh, I started to release this in two parts, but for But for several reasons, I decided to release it as one 
episode. All right. If you're not in the secret Facebook group and you'd like to be, uh, send me your email to john at silverspeak.com and I will get you in there. Follow me on Instagram if you can or if you want to or if you're IG type of person, that would be a at silverspeak, all one word. And once again, if this podcast has had a positive effect on you or even an episode, maybe it was just one episode. Please pause your device and share it with a friend or family member. It may be exactly what they need today. All right. Now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sober Speak Live with my good friend, Jimmy D. Here's a little song I wrote You might want to sing it note for note Don't worry Be happy In every life you have some trouble But when you worry, make it double Don't worry Be happy Don't worry, be happy now place to lay your head somebody came and took your bed but don't worry be happy the landlord say your rent is late he may have to litigate but don't worry be happy don't worry be now don't worry be happy Ain't got no style Ain't got no boy to make me smile Don't worry Be happy Cause when you worry Your face will frown And that will bring everybody down So don't worry Be happy Don't worry, be happy now
I have climbed the highest mountains I have run through the fields Only to be with you Only to be with you I have run, I have crawled I have scaled these city walls only to be with you but I still haven't found what I'm looking for but I still haven't found what I'm looking for I have kissed honey lips felt the healing in his fingertips and it burned like fire this burning desire i have spoke with the tongue of angels i have held the hand of the devil it was warm in the night i was cold as a stone but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. With or without you. With or without you, no. I can't With or without you, with or without you, with or without you, no, I can't live with or without you. looking 
out the etiquette like sometimes I just clap for myself like, <laughs> yay, I did it. <laughs> yay we, we made it, I did it. <laughs> sometimes in our lives we all have pain When you're not strong 
This is just a journey. Drop your worries. You are gonna turn out fine. Whoa, turn out fine. Fine. Whoa, you turn out fine. But you gotta keep your head up. Oh, you can let your head down. Hey, gotta keep your head up. Oh, you can let your head down. Hey, and I know it's hard. No, it's hard to remember sometimes, but you gotta keep your head up, oh, so you can let your head down. Hey. <laughs> Got my hands in my pocket, kicking these rocks. It's kinda hard to watch the world go by. I'm buying into skeptics, skeptics mess with the confidence in my eyes. Seeing all the angles start to get tangled. I start to compromise my life and my purpose. Is it all worth it? Am I gonna turn out fine? Whoa, turn out fine. Fine, whoa, turn out fine. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, so you can let your head down, hey. Gotta keep your head up, oh, you can let your head down, hey. And I know it's hard, no, it's hard to remember sometimes. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, you can let your head down, hey. Only rainbows after rain, the sun will always come again and it's a circle circling around again it goes around only rainbows after rain the sun will always come 
again And it's a circle Circling around again It goes around So you gotta keep your head up Oh You can let your head down Hey Gotta keep your head up Oh You can let your head down Hey And I know it's hard Know it's hard To remember sometimes But you gotta keep your head up Oh You can let your head down to get started. Y'all ready? All right, one more song. I think y'all might know it. And if you do, you can sing along because that would be so cute and fun. Yeah. Or whatever. You guys are participatory. Participatory. I know you <laughs> All right, one more song. Here we go. Think of your fellow man, lend him a helping hand, put a little love in your heart. You see it's getting late, oh please don't hesitate, put a little love in your heart. And the world will be a better place, and the world will be a better place for you and me just wait and see another day goes by and still the children cry put a little love in your heart take a good look around and if you're looking down, put a little love in your heart. And the world will be a better place. And the world will be a better place for you and me. Just wait and see. Wait and want the world to know we won't let hatred grow put a little love in your heart i hope when you decide kindness will be your guide put a little love in your heart and the world will be a better place and the world will be a better a place for you and me just wait and see put a little love in your heart put a little love in your heart put a little love in your heart Put a little love in your heart. One more time. Put a little love. Put a little love in your heart. 
Check, check. One, two, three. There we go. Hey, how about Wendy and Chrissy, everybody? Aren't they fantastic? God bless them. That is fantastic. All right. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and read our agenda. Then we'll get started with Mr. Jimmy, wherever he is right there, in just a moment. So, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. This is Sober Speak Live. <laughs> My name is John M., and I am an alcoholic to remind us of why we are all here and to focus our thoughts on that purpose. Please join me in a moment of silent meditation, followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me this serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Out of respect for those sharing, which would be basically Jimmy, um, please silence your cell phones for the duration of the meeting. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. This is an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, which means anyone can attend. And here at the Sober Speak Live event, which we've had so many before, just kidding, this is our initial one, we offer, uh, we offer chips. We offer desire chip, the first chip that we offer for anybody who may be, uh, we offer desire chip, which is an outward symbol of an inward desire to stay sober for one 24-hour period. This is somebody who uh, is either new to the program or is returning and they need to trade in a dry one for a new one. Is there anybody here that needs a desire chip? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Jerry? Mm -hmm. Have you ever been to a meeting before? I, I was in the program 35 years. We got uh -huh. drunk after that. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, there you go. We're glad you're here, Jerry. God bless you. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, is there anybody else who needs a desired chip? All right. By the way, if you are new to AA or to recovery, please see the newcomer chair people after the meeting who are Chad for the men. Chad, raise your hand. Chad, raise your hand, buddy, so people know who you are. Raise your hand. You're the newcomer chairperson. There you go. <laughs> and for the women, it is Denise. Will you raise your hand? All right, Denise. So if you're new to the program, see either Denise or Chad back there. Mr. Chad is O-Tenner. Uh, for those of you who go to the Frisco group, you'll understand that. All right. We also celebrate monthly milestones with chips as well. Is there anybody here celebrating 
30 days sobriety. Anybody here celebrating 60 days sobriety? Anybody here celebrating three months or 90 days? Anybody here celebrating six months? It's pretty blue, all right? Anybody celebrating nine months by any chance? All right, so just so you know what it's going to be like tonight, we're going to do a couple things. We're going to be recognizing some previous uh, Soberspeak guests. We are going to have Jimmy D up here. And by the way, if when Jimmy D is speaking, you have any questions for him and you would like to answer that after we're through with an interview here, keep those questions, either write them down or keep it in the back of your mind. We're going to go through a little Q&A session with Jimmy. Uh, Then we're going to have more music from Wendy and Chrissy, and then we'll close it out with the Lord's Prayer. So with that being said, if you have ever been on the Sober Speak podcast before and you're willing to come up here, would you please come up front, please? Just stand right here. Oh, wow, look at this, man. This is the engine that makes it work and and on sober speed. So I'm just going to start down here, okay? We're going to give it to Jenny. Do I need to turn this thing on, Preston? Is that the deal? Just say your just say your uh, your name, your first name, and then your episode number. What the title of your episode is, if you remember it. Jenny Alcoholic. Jenny, all right. I believe it's Angry Atheist. Yes, Angry, <laughs> ang- well, Angry Atheist Sees the Light. Oh, Sees the Light. Yeah, yes. that's the important part. So <laughs> this is our atheist who we have turned over. <laughs> all right. I'm Jennifer. I'm an alcoholic. Jennifer. You do? I have no idea what the um, number was, and it's something about being a deadhead. Yeah, yes, this is our deadhead, yes. Yeah, yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, you didn't read the memo, did you? <laughs> All right, go ahead, Tony. Yes. I'm Tony, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Tony. Anybody remember what Preston Pearson's number was? 88? No, no, Drew, 26 was Preston oh, Pearson, tw- so I'm oh. pretty sure that's mine, and it's called It's Not a Fair Fight. That's right. Thank you, Tony. Casey Alcoholic. Hey, Casey. I didn't know there would be a quiz. <laughs> um, episode 20. I don't remember what one was called, though. I don't know. Episode either. 20. You didn't get the memo either. I didn't. All right. But I remember 20. So but Casey's pretty, on episode number 20. All right. Well, I'm Chad. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Chad. Give me your sobriety uh, date. February 13th, O-Tenner. O-Tenner. Um, In fact, that is the name of your West Texas O-Tenner. West Texas O-Tenner. Okay. There you go. I didn't know it was going to be mad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm John W. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, John. Episode 81, uh, The Principles of AA. Yes. My name's Ken. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Ken. I'm not sure what my episode number was, but John aced it. I mean, he did, <laughs> he did really well. The, uh, but the name of the episode was Sober Men Do It Differently. That's right. Wow. Hard to follow that. My name is Jessica, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jessica. 41. Freedoms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Freedom, that's right. Oh, by the way, this is the only, let me make sure up here, the only non-alcoholic we have in the group, which I absolutely love. (laughs) This is Vanessa. We met Vanessa up here during one of the uh, sessions we had at Grace Avenue United Methodist Church. 
That's right. I'm an ally. My name is Vanessa Sanford. And my episode number was 61, and it was called Breathe In Resilience, Breathe Out Shame. Yes. Very good episode. I'm Shannon, alcoholic. I am John's wife, and I do not... a lot of work, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Look at sh- she's like I do not know my episode number or title because John forgot to send me the email <laughs> for me to know that, that information. True. Like, look it up, you know. <laughs> Greg C., alcoholic, random day in 2009, The Gratitude Man, episode 34. Yes, and he also has an Instagram called The Gratitude Man for those of you interested in it. Don C., I'm an alcoholic. Been Ooh, sober. She's- since July 20th, 2009, first one was episode 15. I could never forget what John titled it, Psycho Girlfriend Turns a Fanatic. Yeah. <laughs> and episode 85, which is Just Do the Work. Thanks. I'm Christina, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Christina. So I think I'm episode eight, but eight. I'm not 100% sure, and it's the 51-pound beagle. Yes. <laughs> Hi, I'm Megan. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Megan. Um, Episode 57, Recovery Provides Everything That Alcohol Promised. Steve, alcoholic. Hey, Steve. I know one of them is episode 13, and I've got another one that we just talked about, Crest Abuse. Right. What's your one of 13 called? Do you remember? No. All right, so everybody give them a big round of applause. So now for the main portion of our particular event here, and that is Mr. Jimmy D. So Jimmy D, why don't you come on up here, buddy? So Jimmy D, first thing, why don't you go ahead and give, introduce yourself and give your sobriety date if you so wish to do that. Hey everybody, my name's Jimmy, I'm an alcoholic. I'm sober since August the 25th of 1997. I'm thankful for that, glad to be here. Yeah. So one of the first things I wanted to ask you about, Jimmy, is the, the group that you go to, the group that you attend, and the name of the group, and how it actually got to be named what it is. So I'm a founding member of the Chicago group of Alcoholics Anonymous that meets smack dab in the middle of Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Those of you who've been in AA in length of time, that will not surprise you at all. Um, 16 years and some change ago, we sat around my sponsor's kitchen table. We were, at that time, members of the Big Book Group in Dallas, and, uh, and we had some formats. I brought an agenda to that meeting, uh, the old Suburban Group in Dallas. I wanted to resurrect Suburban, bring back their old group service number, and just kind of do a Suburban Part 2. And uh, there was a guy in that meeting, there were six or seven of us, that had a format a 90-minute speaker meeting format, highly suspect in Dallas, Texas. Any meeting lasts longer than an hour. And we like that format. And, uh, and that format is verbatim. It's still used today, even talking about beepers and pagers. And, uh, and that meeting you can find inside the loop, downtown Chicago, Illinois, on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Uh, the name of that meeting in Chicago is the California Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. So... <laughs> There you go. 
we had a couple that left our group and moved to San Antonio. He went to medical school down there, and I don't believe the meeting is still going on, but for two or three years, you could go to San Antonio on a Wednesday night at 7 and attend the Dallas group of Alcock's Nominus <laughs> San Antonio. All right. So, and Jimmy, just so people know, you are the in a very high-paid position within Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Oh, yes, right? absolutely. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm joking about that. He is the Southwest Regional Trustee. and uh, I am, I'm your Southwest Regional Trustee. He is our Southwest Regional Trustee. And just kind of a thumbnail sketch of what exactly is the Southwest Regional Trustee? Well, if you ever look at the structure of Alcoholics Anonymous, kind of like the Chicago group name, right? Everything, quote-unquote, is upside down compared to the outside world. The groups are at the top of the food chain. They've always been at the top of the food chain. The highest that I ever got in Alcoholics Anonymous is when I claimed membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I said I'm a member of AA, I was at the top of the highest mountain. So if you find this third legacy of service, that third leg of our triangle, uh, it is possible to be grossly unqualified to do any of the jobs that AA will elect you to do. And, uh, and so I floated down the AA food chain, and, uh, and if you look at that triangle, at the very bottom of that triangle is our board, 21 members of that board, and I am one of those 21 members of General Service Board of AA. So let's turn a corner a little bit and talk about you, where you came from, kind of your story. Uh, I know you grew up here in Dallas, correct? I did. So tell me about that, what your life was like growing up and kind of take me through your teen years and, you know, up to getting in uh, uh, to college, I guess. Minute by minute, second yeah. by second. <laughs> uh, my mother was from South Louisiana, met her a girl, come to Dallas, go to school at SMU. My father, the man who was going to be my father, was not an academician, but he found himself at the head of a classroom at Southern Methodist University for one year. It was really a mistake. Um, they needed a geology professor. He didn't have any qualifications except he had some degrees. And uh, he taught geology at SMU for a year. So my mother was an art history major. I mean, she didn't know anything about science, uh, to my knowledge. But she found herself in the geology class. And all we can figure out about that is obviously she liked that professor pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, and so progress, right? Normal progress. A year later, she graduated from school. A year later... They engaged to be married. A year after that, they got married. And a year after that, they had me. Um, and we lived at the head of Swiss Avenue. If you've ever been downtown, I mean, we're in the far northern regions of the Metroplex at this point. But if you, you, know, if you ever got brave and ventured way south of LBJ Freeway, uh, you could find Lakewood. And, uh, and that old house is still sitting there, built in the late teens, early 20s. Um, big old Munster-looking house, right? That's what made it a Munster-looking house? Because it was a big old red brick house with a green tile roof and uh, probably, like I said, built maybe in 1918, 1919 and a bunch of old trees in front of it, you know, ancient trees. They did, you know, with all those spindly branches. And so when I was a little bitty boy, I always thought, I watched those reruns, they were even reruns in my time, reruns of Munsters on television, and I'd think, that looks just like our house, except for the spooky parts, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, my mom stayed at home, like women did in the 60s, and raised her one child, it was me, and my father ran a company, they shot seismic, and he'd take these trips. And My dad would, uh, would take these two or three day trips, and when I was a little boy, three or four years old, when he'd leave, we'd do this little thing called the going away game, and two or three days later, my daddy came back home, when he came back home, made it a big deal in our house. So we called it the coming home game. 
And that old house had two front doors. You had a front front door and you had a little foyer area and then you had another front door. And he'd come in that first front door and he'd slam it just as hard as he possibly could. And it was a big old wood door and like, you know, those old houses built like tombs. I mean, you could whisper and hear it on the third floor. And uh, that door would echo through that house. He had a mark in between those two doors and he'd hit his mark and he'd holler, home, I'm home, home, right? That deep voice come all through that house. And, that meant you were supposed to come. So I'd be up there in that playroom at the tail end of the top floor of that house, and I'd wait him out sometimes, maybe one or two minutes, just to see what he might do. And what he'd do is he'd go back outside, he'd slam that door harder, and he'd yell louder, he wanted you to come. And I don't know your story. I mean, I know some stories. I know some people in here, but, uh, you know, I was four years old. My dad had been gone three days. That was 100 years. And, uh, and I'd bound, bound down those stairs two at a time. And I grabbed him around his legs as hard as I could. I mean, that's been 40-odd, 50. I'm 54 years old, long time ago. But I remember it. Always had a jacket. And he'd say, Jimbo, reach in a pocket. And I'd have to get in either this pocket of hair on the outside or I'd have to sometimes snake up on the inside breast pocket to find the prize. There was always a prize. He'd been on a trip, bring back the prize. Sometimes a Hot Wheels car. Flint Rock or an Arrowhead from Alamogordo, New Mexico, and he'd spin some tail. And my mother was from an old family from the deep south. I mean, the deepest of the deepest of the deep south. And, uh, and so there were rules about everything in our house. So three of us were together, and we had a big old dining room, and three of us would sit at this table for 15, and we would have a linen tablecloth and a bunch of china plates and crystal glasses and silverware nobody knew how to use. And <laughs> that's just the way we lived. We lived with rules. Uh, we lived with structure, and we lived, I think, with a lot of love. I mean, there were no loud voices in that home. There were never any breaking glasses, and there weren't any squealing tires in the driveway. Everything, everything seemed to be just as good as it could possibly be. And about four, maybe coming into five years of age, one day my dad was there, and the next day he was gone. I didn't see or hear anything from him again until I was 19, so about 14 years later, I got a telephone call one day, and... Uh, Young woman on the other end of the line, she introduced herself and told me that she had found my name and number of the telephone book, and she asked me if I was the Jimmy that I, she was looking for. And I was 19, I'd started my drinking, we call it career in Alcoholics Anonymous at 15, so I was running around with a group of people that were teaching me how to have a good time. I think lots of drunks in the room knew those people, helped them learn how to have a good time. And, and so I learned some rules of engagement for drunks. One of the primary rules of engagement is you never let somebody know if you were the person they were looking for till you found out why <laughs> they were looking for you. So we exchanged a couple of pleasantries and I found out she was fairly safe and certainly she wasn't working for Dallas County and so <laughs> she was the daughter of a woman that my father had married. They lived within four or five miles of me all those years. She called me to tell me my father had a stroke and died and uh, you know, I don't know what happened in that house. Where were the loud voices? Where were the squealing tires in the driveway? You know, my mother picked up, became a single parent for a year, about a year, a little over a year, and uh, we rocked along, I guess I would say. You know, I was pretty much oblivious to the whole deal, except that it was odd that that trip that was supposed to be three days was obviously extended for an unknown period of time. She met this man, it's a big deal for her, devout Catholic, went church every day I could ever remember. Marriage was a sacrament, marriage was a big deal, and she met this guy, and she called him a date. I didn't know what a date was, I was five years old, I didn't know if it was living, you know, human, inhuman, I had no idea. And the date was coming to our house that night, and he was going to pick my mother up and take her somewhere. 
So I stood out there on La Vista Drive and I waited for him to come because obviously I'm five years old and I'm the man of the house and I waited for him. And this yellow Ford Fairlane 500 convertible roared up our street and there wasn't much roaring going on in Lakewood, not in the 60s or today. <laughs> and when he got out of that car, that date was a human. It was about six foot three, it had lamb chop sideburns and curly black hair, it had on black shirt, black pants, black belt, black pointy-toed boots. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I mean, <laughs> think about it. my dad had taught at a university for a year as a service to his greater community, right? So exhibit A. And then you got the guy in the convertible with the lamb chop sideburns, <laughs> Billy Jack, coming to the front door of your house, and exhibit Z. We exchanged looks up and down, up and down. He got tired of that, picked me up sideways, like UPS carry a big, long package to your house, and then knocked on the front door. And when my mother answered the door, he handed her a strange little package. This must belong to you. And, uh, and what happened over the sequence of events, kind of ramp it up, is within a year or 14 months, he converted Catholicism she had her marriage annulled and they got married. And this big tall guy that looked so intimidating segued into the role of husband and father just like he had been made to do it all his life. And we rocked along and had a great time. He was a stockbroker, had this opportunity to go to Lafayette, Louisiana and open a new office. And so he came home one day and told us we were moving from Lakewood, from Dallas, Texas, Lafayette, Louisiana. My mother was so excited she couldn't stand it. Now she was not a Cajun girl, no offense to anybody who might be Cajun. <laughs> Uh, heritage, but uh, she was a girl again from the deep south and so my mother felt like she was kind of on another planet up here. I mean her parents, her grandparents, her family, they could not believe that she had come to Texas for higher education. They just could not imagine that she would come over here and try to learn how to do anything. <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean 1800 was new for them. We picked everything up and we moved from Dallas to Lafayette. And we bought a house on the New Iberia Road and we rocked along for a year and I was like a Cajun kid. Everybody else was a Cajun kid. I was in a little parochial school and there were Thibodeaux and Arsenaux and Flows and Moes. Right. That parochial school teacher called, my, called the roll. She called my last name, which only has four letters in it, and she'd go, where are you from? All right, where are you from? <laughs> the end of that summer, my stepdad's mom, my grandmother, flew to Lafayette, bring me back to Dallas for the summer and... Uh, my mother drove me to the airport that morning and got on the plane with me. There weren't any laws about that in 1973. And she told me about the places they were going to go and the things they were going to see. And she said, honey, you won't believe how quickly summer's going to pass. We'll all be back together in Lafayette. She kissed me on the cheek. She left. We flew to Dallas. The next morning I was upstairs in my grandmother's house and I smelled breakfast. The phone was ringing. I heard people talking and I went downstairs like anybody would to see what was happening. I was eight. There were 40 or 50 people in that living room, in that breakfast room that morning. Everybody quits talking and they look at the kid. And my grandmother says, your mother's had an accident. We've got to go back to Lafayette just as quickly as we can. And I remember thinking, what's a big deal? We gathered some people in some clothes. We go on the next plane to Lafayette and we'd, we go to the Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Lafayette, Louisiana. The old building's gone now. They've torn it down. And they'd leave me in a waiting room in the front of that room and go down the hallway and go in my mother's hospital room. and. Uh, and I sat in that waiting room all day for a number of days, and we didn't have any technology. I mean, it's 1973, maybe somebody had some flashcards, but there was nothing. But that old building, you've been in those old buildings, square ceiling tiles and dots in the tiles, and I'd count those dots just to pass the time. 
and I'd get up to a number, or I'd get fairly high, maybe 140, 150, and I'd lose that number, and I'd lose that number and look down that hallway. And when I looked down that hallway, somebody popped out of that room, and when they popped out of that room, maybe four or five, six times a day, I had this elation because I thought they're coming to get me. Because if I hold her hand or whisper in her ear, I can fix it. And all we did was just not talk. We left that house before it got sunny in the morning and we didn't get home until it was way past dark at night and that house was quiet and empty and dark and nobody talked and their moods were dark and we did that, I don't know, eight or nine days. They sent a priest up that hall at that hospital and he sat down next to me and gave me a prayer card and said, think good thoughts about your mother and that's the way they let me know she had passed away. Something or somebody had run her off the road right after she left me at the Lafayette airport and... Uh, and I appreciate that one of your uh, people, one of our people that's here tonight, uh, atheist, angry atheist, uh, you know, I was not, I could not have been classified as an atheist when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a fundamental belief, I guess, that I had learned when I was a little boy, but my mother was the kind of person where her cup got filled in her building. And even though I was only eight years old when she passed away, I remember that oftentimes she took her little boy with her when she did her service work and she'd say things to me and she would watch. And when she'd see somebody new that would begin to assimilate in that particular community, her eyes sparkled just like ours do when we see somebody who'll move a chair, pick up a cup, make a pot of coffee, show up early, stay a little bit late. God forbid, get in the car with somebody and go across town, right? Scary, scary stuff. But she knew all of that stuff in her world. And she surrendered on a moment-by-moment basis to the power that she knew was greater than herself. And when she was taken away like that, I filed away for future reference. Don't get too close to that power. It's evil. It'll destroy you in the lives of people around you that love you unconditionally. We can say those were the musings of an eight-year-old boy, but I can tell you I was 32 when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I still felt exactly the same way. So we close up the house. My real father's living. He didn't make himself known. We came to Dallas, and we had a ranch south of Fort Worth in Glen Rose, big place down there. My stepfather went to Glen Rose. I moved in with his mother, my grandmother, went back to my old elementary school. He'd call us on the weekends. He called me on the weekends, asked me how school was going, if I'd hooked up with my old friends. And I talked to him for a few minutes and I'd hang up and I'd think, you know, he should be here with us because he's my dad now and I'm living with his mother. And uh, I'd eavesdrop on my grandmother's conversation. She was the youngest of nine children. There were five girls in that family. And I'll promise you, they talked to each other every day for 75 years. And uh, <laughs> And she'd say, he just needs time. His heart is broken because she died so tragically. But she'd say, if we leave him on that land, he's going to be okay because that land has always given him strength. That's what we did. We left him on that land. And 11 months after my mother died, our house was full of people. And uh, my stepfather committed suicide in the living room of that ranch house, my grandmother's only child. And, uh, and I was angry. And as adults, certainly, I am not unique in having that particular experience. It's awkward. It's an awkward experience when someone passes away just by going to sleep, not waking up the next day, and people don't really know exactly how to extend the comfort, the love, one another to try to buffer some of that pain. But I can tell you that was an ugly situation, and, uh, and I stood right next to her for I don't know how many days or weeks through all of the processes that are involved in all that stuff, and I can't tell you how many people would approach her and say whatever it was that they felt like they could say. 
And they would always wrap it up by saying, you know, God doesn't give you more than what you could handle. But they didn't go home with her at night. That big old 5,000 square foot house, every light blazing, or maybe every single light except for a night light turned off. And maybe that particular night she's curled up in a fetal position in the middle of the living room floor, just dying of a broken heart. So I combine all of those things together and I share those in a room full of members of Alcoholics Anonymous not to elicit any sort of empathy or feeling but to tell you how adamantly I posed I was to the spiritual nature of the program which my sponsor quickly told me you can't take the spiritual part of the program out of Alcoholics Anonymous because it's the only part of the program in Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, And so I was a guy who was not willing to subscribe when I came. So I was an orphan, right? I'm nine years old and I'm really an orphan. I mean, I'm a Catholic child, right? So I've got godparents, but I mean, we're Catholic, right? They got herds of kids of their own. (laughs) So that stepfather's mother, the woman who wasn't blood related to me at all, she said, I love this boy and I loved his mother and my son obviously loved them both. And so she stepped into the role and she raised me. She gave me tools for living and she told me right from wrong and I don't want to skip over the part about qualifying to have a seat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous but I want to talk about people that love us unconditionally just for a minute and she was the person that I drug with me when it came to AA. She was 95 years old when she passed away and 14 years continuous sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and we were current. We were current because of the direction of a sponsor. We were current because of maintenance and staying current. We were, we were current because my sponsor would quickly remind me that if my program didn't work at home, it wasn't any good at all. We were current because I made financial amends that I thought I didn't need to make. We were current because I made direct amends that I was afraid to make. We were current that when I was shiny penny new in sobriety and I wasn't welcome in her home, that sponsor said, you call her every Sunday until she tells you to quit calling her on Sunday. And I did what he told me to do because I didn't have any better ideas, right? You mentioned financial amounts. Can you talk about that with your grandmother? I owed everybody in the world when I came to AA. Um, I was the kind of guy who would uh, owe Diners Club $14.93. But if I opened the envelope when I was in my cups... Uh, Diners Club would say something to the effect of, Dear Mr., we are concerned. Uh, we ha- Please remit payment $14.93. Now, it is possible that I probably could have scraped up the $14.93, but Diners Club saying that we are concerned, that offended me. And, uh, and so I would call Diners Club, And I would immediately say, I need to talk to your supervisor, which means I need to talk to the supervisor of the supervisor, and I'd be sucking on vodka or gin or bourbon or whatever. I mean, it'd be about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'd be getting a really good buzz on and and accelerating that process. And uh, I finally got to a point where I didn't realize I could be forwarded any further, and I said, make a note. Make a note. I'll send you a check for 17 cents a month for the next 14 years. (laughs) You know, $14.92 to Diners Club was probably had accrued interest in penalties. Maybe it was a smaller bill. It's probably about $2,000 by the time I got sober in AA. And uh, I didn't say anything about the money when I made direct amends. When I made direct amends, I made direct amends. My sponsor said, you have two minutes. You pray about what you're going to say, but you have two minutes. And then she has the floor. And so I said I was wrong. I had not honored the values. I had not respected her home. I had made her afraid of me. 
And then I shut up and she had the floor and for about three hours, she took it. (laughs) And I wish that for every sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. To actually hear what alcoholism really looks like and feels like in a person that just wouldn't stay down. She thought if I paid for it one more time, perhaps something would change. If I get him in a new apartment or condominium, perhaps something will change. If I send him to Europe for the summer, maybe something will change. It's those people. Get him over to these people instead of those people. Shuffling, 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 working, working, working. I'll bail him out of jail. Maybe the most important one was, you know what? Even though he's telling me the same story for the hundredth time, I'm going to believe it just once more. Failed every single time. But I didn't say anything about money. I went back to my sponsor the next week to report how well I thought the admins had gone. Because my condition was, you keep doing what you're doing. But she said, if you don't, don't tell me. Because we're done. I put up with stuff from you I wouldn't put up from my own, up with from my own child. And I'm not going to do it. And, uh, and so I went back to Greg, who was my sponsor at the time. And, and I reported it. And he looked at me and said, what about the money? I said, she didn't say anything about the money. And he said, that's not what I ask you. What about the money? And I said, well, she doesn't need the money. And uh, he said, that's really not what I ask you. And so I went back the following week and I asked her because I said, my AA sponsor is making me (laughs) come and talk to you about the money. And I know you don't care about the money. And she said, well, that's going to take me some time. And I said, oh my gosh, time, one day at a time, but we've got plenty of time. And she said, oh honey, it's not going to take me that long. I just need to find all my bank statements. And... uh, Pink tickets from Lakewood Country Club used to come in two envelopes taped together. She had all the records, every single record. Because, you know, I'd take 10 or 15 of you tonight, and we'd run down to Lakewood, and we'd just sign tickets, and y'all would give me cash. And I had some running around money. And and I began to write checks, because she gave me a number. And when I got that number, she said, I know you owe everybody in the country, kind of like the Diners Club deal. And I want you to bring me every single bill that you owe because today I believe that you'll pay me back. And I wrote a check at the beginning of every month. I'd probably been sober about 10 months. So 1998. And I wrote checks at the beginning of every single month and stroked my last check in August, my fifth anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the most important thing about that is not about, I think, the process of that the relationship changed drastically. Hmm. And it was never about the money. The time that I wrote my last check, I was a 38-year-old man. She'd known me since I was a four-year-old little boy, so almost 35 years. And she and I both realized at the time that that was done that that was the first thing I had done from start to finish consistently in all the time that she had known me. She never came to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but she loved what she called the AA. I took her to lunch on Sundays, and first thing she'd ask me is, Baxter, how's Baxter? That's my sponsor for the last 20 years. How's Baxter? Is Baxter doing okay? She wanted to make sure Baxter was healthy and still in the middle of the day. So my commitment, I know we have to move on, but my commitment to her was on Sunday. And I've served in all these different general service positions and everybody who's been wounded enough, you know, you went to the bathroom and you came back and you were the GSR, you know, the district meetings on Sunday. And I asked her permission for all that stuff. 
I made a talk at Town North Groups, one of the first talks I ever made in AA. As Jimmy S. would say, the world-famous Town North Group on Sunday morning. And, uh, and so I asked her permission, and I said, I'm going to make a talk. I can't come to lunch till a little bit later. And she said, talk? Talk about what? <laughs> I've been sober about a year and a half, and, uh, and I said, well, we tell our stories in Alcoholics Anonymous, what we were like, what happened to us, and what we're like today, and she said, good God, how long did they give you for that? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, about 45 or 50 minutes if you follow what they want you to do, and she said, you make sure before you sit down that you tell those people I did not raise you to be alcoholic. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So, you know, at 15, I took my first drink, like so many people take their first drink. I mean, I, I say that. I mean, I was a nerd at Wood Wilson High School and running around with a couple of twins whose dad was a podiatrist. So hopefully you were a little more socially adept at 15 than I was. And uh, we you went were to a, a nerd. Oh, huh? God almighty. I still, I'm still a nerd. <laughs> some of these guys I sponsor, there are a couple in the room tonight, but some of these guys I sponsor give me such a hard time. Like I went to, uh, you know, you go on a program, right? You go for a weekend conference or something like Crested Butte deal, right? So I did a couple in early, early in the year this year, New York, one Rochester, one Syracuse. So I was in Syracuse and it was after the ice cream social on Saturday night. So it's about 1030 and I'm all caffeined up and all jicked up with sugar and I can't go to sleep and I get into Wikipedia. So the first thing I start with is Syracuse, New York. I just want to learn a little bit about the city I'm in. I've never been to Syracuse, New York before. And then I find out it's the Salt City. That's its nickname is the Salt City. So I drill down into Salt City. And then I find out a little bit about the Erie Canal and the building of the Erie Canal. It had to do with Syracuse, New York. So now I'm on the link on the Erie Canal. And then I'm deep down into the Erie Canal. And I'm finding about why they built the Erie Canal. And I mean, it is like 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> And I am three hours into Wikipedia, and I'm just—I'm as—I'm as happy as I have ever been. So I meet my host for breakfast in the mor- in the morning. Born and raised in Syracuse, like fifth or sixth or seventh generation guy, sitting across the breakfast table from me. I think you know they try to give you somebody new. You know they sucker them into hosting some jerk from Dallas who's coming up to talk, and uh, and I think he'd been sober about two years. And I said so. Syracuse is a salt city, and he goes, what? (laughs) And I said, aren't you from here? And he said, yeah. (laughs) And I said, have you ever been on Wikipedia? And he's going, I have to introduce this guy? I want that cool guy over there that talked Friday night. I want to swap speakers with you, please. So, yeah. And so, you yeah. said you were practically born in a suit and tie. Why you well, you know, that? you always had to get dressed for something. My grandmother believed that any time you got even close to an airplane, you wore a Navy jacket and some gray flannel pants. I mean, that's just the way you grew up. <laughs> and, uh, and so when they told me you make a talk in Alcoholics Anonymous, make sure you wear a coat and tie to respect the podium, that was never a problem for me. But I've been able to sponsor a whole lot of guys who didn't get any of that, right? They didn't get that Navy jacket, and they didn't get that gray flannel set of pants. And there have been many times now in the 22 years I've been sober when you'd be able to go to Salvation Army or you go down to Coles or somewhere like that because the guy's going to get a one-year medallion from a program that saved his life and he's proud of that Navy jacket and he's proud of those gray flannel pants. You haven't lived till you've sponsored a man who's 50 years old who's never tied a necktie and you get to stand behind him and help him stand in front of that mirror at your group and tie that tie. I had no idea. That's what Alcox and Amos was going to be about. I had no idea.
No idea. I thought the probation officer was going to get off my back. I mean, it was my second DWI. It was getting hot. <laughs> I've been in that company for 13 years at the time, now 35 years and a little bit further along. And I'd show up in that office in the morning and walk down the hallway. And those people that had worked with me all those years since I was 19 years old, they'd get up and they'd shut their doors when I walked down the hallway so they'd let me know how disgusted they were that nobody had the guts to fire me. I thought Alcoholics Anonymous was about just getting the heat off. And I don't ever want to forget, and oftentimes that I do, when I have an opportunity to engage with my fellows in Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't ever want to forget that I need to say that I was a settler. I would have just come for just the beginnings. I would have sat in your meetings. It's not hard for a nerd like me to absorb 164 pages of material in a technical sense. Not in a spiritual sense, but in a technical sense. And I'm going to tell you, I can parrot stuff in such a way that I'll make the paint peel off of the walls. And then I'll leave that building and I'll act exactly the way that I acted before I ever even came to AA. I had to have those principles reinforced in my life by those people who told me at dinner, dinner, breakfast, brunch, breakfast conferences over the weekend. I mean, I went to the Canyon Conference when I had, I know this is so tangential and off the wall. Nine months of sobriety, I went to the Canyon Conference in Oklahoma. and uh, I came out early on a Saturday morning, like seven o'clock in the morning, because I could not believe that my life had dropped to the point <laughs> where I would be in a Methodist campground in the middle of nowhere, western Oklahoma, with a bunch of people I hated. <laughs> And I came outside to fire up a cigarette because I thought at least I can have a cigarette and just as much coffee as I can possibly process. And, uh, and my sponsor came outside and said, make sure you make your bunk before you go to breakfast. And I puffed up a little bit. Might have been the first time that I ever really puffed up. Now, I have never had an argument with either one of my two sponsors. I do not have that experience. But I puffed up that morning. I mean, my grandmother would say I bowed up. And I didn't catch myself because it was early and I didn't have enough nicotine or caffeine in me. And I said, I don't make my bed. And he looked at me with a little twinkle in his eye and he said, good God, Jimmy, whisper that when you say it. Don't let anybody know you don't make your bed. And then he started on and on and on about that. And then he walked me back inside the cabin and announced to the other 16 men in the cabin, here, this is a 33-year-old man who does not know how to make a bed. <laughs> Now, that was not about humiliation. It was about making me feel a part of that pack because they all started laughing and for the next 20 or 30 minutes, we made a huge game and had some of that belly aching laugh while those 16 guys helped me make that little bunk. <laughs> I wouldn't take for that. I would not take for that. If I had been left to my own devices, I would have missed everything. Is that that same road trip where you drove up to Oklahoma? No, that was the anniversary in Norman. That was 60 days of sobriety. Tell me about that. So my sponsor today got sober in Norman, Oklahoma. When I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, he was my sponsor's sponsor. So we had, you know, this, and everybody in AA, again, you've been in AA any length of time, you know, we're all interconnected. 
I mean, not just in the sponsorship deal, but we're just all interconnected. Somebody knows somebody or is sponsored by somebody or sponsored by, sponsored by somebody. I mean, it's just all interwoven. And so we had this reciprocal agreement with a group in Norman, Oklahoma. I mean, it just happened that way because my sponsor's sponsor had gotten sober up there. So they had their group anniversary. I'd been sober about 50 days. And so my sponsor said, we're going to Norman. And he was just as excited about it as he could possibly be. And I mean, I'm 60 days in program and I am not having it. I'm not feeling it. I'm not having it. And I thought, good God, how, I mean, how, think quick. Think, you know, you can't get a travel permit. I mean, I was still on probation for DWI. Something, something, think of something. And I couldn't think quick enough. And he said, we're leaving at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. And so at the time, there were three of us that were, I guess willing well we weren't willing but we went and uh and he had a honda accord my sponsor and i had the least amount of time so i sat in the hump in the back of that honda accord and neither one of those other two guys stayed sober but i'll promise you one of them weighed about 375 pounds other one probably about right at 400 two of the biggest guys ever been sober in aa so even a skinny guy like me i mean i had about this much room And we pulled away from that curb, and Greg, my sponsor, he's about the same age as I was, maybe a year or two younger than me. He's a kid of the 80s. I'm a kid of the 80s. He popped in a cassette, and I thought, thank God. Thank God we do not have to talk about that book. We don't have to talk about that home group. We don't have to talk about how much we love everybody, about spiritual awakenings or any of that other crap. He's going to play some cars or head east, or we got some Van Halen. I mean, at least we can just have a brief respite, because I'm thinking it's probably going to take us nine hours to get to Norman. And the tape spun up, and when the tape spun up, the woman said, my name is Sharon, and I'm an alcoholic. I didn't know about speaker tapes. I didn't know about any of that. Now, vitally important component that I skipped over just a minute ago was they were all excited because the woman who was talking at this Norman group anniversary, her name was Sharon from Los Angeles. So I'm thinking, Sharon, fairly common name. She starts the beginning of her tale of woe, and I raise my hand from the hump in the back so I can be recognized. And I said... Isn't, isn't that uncanny? We're going all the way to Norman, hear a woman named Sharon, make some kind of talk, and Alcoholics Anonymous, and you just happen to have a cassette. This other woman, her name's Sharon, too. So you can see his face in the rearview mirror. He's got that furrowed brow, you know, the sponsor furrowed brow, and the eyebrows have kind of, you know, merged into one common brow. And, and he goes... What's uncanny about that? And I said, well, I'm just saying, you know, (laughs) ha, ha, ha. We're going to hear a Sharon, and and we're hearing a Sharon. That that seems to be unusual. He said, well, there's nothing unusual about it at all. And I said, why do you not think that's just a little bit funny? And he said, because it's the same person. (laughs) I said, so... We're going to Norman so we can hear Sharon talk. But on the way to Norman, we're going to play a tape of her talk. (laughs) And he gets the furrowed brow again, and he looks in the rearview mirror, and he said, Jimmy, good God, it's not the same talk, right? Like, I'm supposed to understand what that means, right? 
So we get to Ardmore, and I'm thinking it's halfway there. Even I know it's 100 miles, and it's halfway there. And, I mean, we pull off the interstate, and I'm thinking, thank God, just get me out of the car. I mean, I'm either suicidal or homicidal. I mean, it's bad. Because they have been talking about all this lamb and bunny stuff, skippy, skippy, you know, down the highway. And, all, I mean, just... So we went into downtown Ardmore, so for many years, now they've moved out to the interstate, but if you ever go up on 35, now they're over on the, on the southbound side of the interstate, but way back then, they were in a cinder block building, it's the fried pie place in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and you never, never pass north or south on Interstate 35 if you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous without stopping in Ardmore at the Fried Pie Place because there's a 40-year sober member of AA that owns the Fried Pie Place. And of course, he would know if you were on Interstate 35 and you passed by and didn't stop in, (laughs) he would be offended. We quizzed into that parking lot, and uh, they got out of the car, Greg and this other guy that was riding shotgun in the front, and the three new guys, I'm being the newest of the new guys, we're piling out of the back and just kind of looking around like new guys look around. And, uh, and you know, there were people from Tulsa, and there were people from Kansas, and there were people from all part of Texas, and, uh, and they all knew each other. In a gravel parking lot, cinder block building in Ardmore, Oklahoma, because everybody knew that you didn't go north or south on Interstate 35 without stopping at the fried pie place. And there was a sense of community, there was a sense of unity from all of these people that only saw one another once a year, if even. And I really did feel for the very first time, I want what they have, and I think I'm almost willing to go to any lengths to get that. It's amazing. Yeah. So let's get up to when you're coming into AA now. So let's uh, talk about like your first meeting coming into AA, what it was like for you, what your experience was like then. So it was Memorial Day of 97. I was in an outpatient treatment facility in Dallas. I had bargained for that because they were going to send me to state jail for two years for revocation of probation. And uh, and so I bargained for 4 o'clock to 9 o'clock Monday through Friday because I knew I could keep drinking. I didn't have any intention of quitting drinking. And I mean, my God, it was only my second DWI and they were nine years apart. So I went to the treatment center and that's all I really committed to do was go to the treatment center. And right before six o'clock, they marched us like lemmings. There were about six or eight of us and they marched us around the corner and lo and behold, there was an AA group. And, uh, and they unleashed us on that group. Uh, they put us in there and, uh, and it was a huge meeting back then. And I don't know what they discussed. Uh, I think that's probably fairly irrelevant but at the end of the meeting, just like you did tonight, they offered silver chip for 24 hours continuous sobriety. Now, I had a bottle of Tank Ray Gin in the front seat of my car, and I needed a drink. Because I'd been in treatment center since 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But the other people that were in that center with me thought that I needed that silver chip. And so they kind of goaded me to get up and get that medallion from that chairperson. Uh, you know, none of the people that were gathered in the room, they didn't know anything about whether or not I had any resolve, any element of surrender. They just knew that I had actually taken the walk and picked up the chip. And after that meeting was over, because of the nature of that particular assemblage of individuals, they had met and the meeting was why they came together. So at a couple minutes after seven, the room was empty. I held back because other people in the treatment center held back. I don't necessarily think I held back because I believed that someone from Alcoholics Anonymous was quote unquote expected to engage with the new man. I didn't know anything about how AA was laid out. I do today. 
And I realize what happened is pavement time, most important reason to go to any meeting about Cox Nama. Guy had six months of sobriety held back, approached the new guy who was me, and he shook my hand and he said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, looked me straight in the eyes. He said, I'm going to give you my telephone number, I'm going to do everything I can to get yours, and if you'll be at this same meeting tomorrow night, I'll be here too, and, uh, and I will promise you after 22 years of being in the middle of this deal that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me everything I ever needed in that meeting that night. I had a handshake from a guy who had been sober for six months continuously. That sounded like a thousand years. I had been drinking nonstop for the past 17 years. I was dying of alcoholism. So I understand and I appreciate that we meet. But I had dinner uh, after our meeting last night. We meet on Wednesday night. A guy was sitting next to me from Louisville. Sober now, I think about five years. I was doing the Traditions or the Steps friendship group five years ago. You know, we all go around here and there, here, there, nither, and yon. And uh, He didn't get a desire chip. He'd been sober, I think, about 30 days. The meeting was over. They turned off the coffee. They shut off the lights, and they left because they'd met. No harm, no foul. There's not a tone of pessimism intended in any of that. But I'm going to tell you, they left their newcomer with their speaker. And he said, I'm about to make a trip to Philadelphia for work, and I've never made a work trip in sobriety. I'm really keyed up about that. And I don't presume to sponsor a guy or give a guy direction that has not invited me to be his sponsor. But I said, where are you going in Philadelphia? And he started looking at his phone, found a little bit of information here and there and everywhere, and I said, I got a point person for you. I'll tell you what worked for me when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous. The message was skin on it. I'm going to give you the message with skin on it, but you got to make a commitment to me. Because, see, I was going to be back at the group the following week, right? I'm doing the traditions or whatever I'm doing. And I said, if I give you this telephone number, you got to tell me that you're actually going to call this woman. It's been sober 30 years in AA. And he said he would. He said, how do you know this woman? I said, I met her in Virginia. He said, where is she from? I said, she's born and raised in Philadelphia. I said, he said, how in the world did you meet her in Virginia? I said, well, I'm from Texas, and I went to talk at a conference in Virginia, and she, 30 years ago, went to this conference in Virginia and has continued to attend this conference in Virginia. And I said, I actually never knew her, but I knew her sponsor. Her sponsor's from Maine. Makes perfect sense to an AA member, and his eyeballs are about as big as saucers. I said, don't worry about what the connections are. Just take the telephone number. The next night on my phone, I had a picture texted to me. He had called that woman. She had gone 30 or 40 miles in Philadelphia to pick him up because that's what we do. Because five years ago, we had spent a weekend together at a conference that she happens to be a board member of. And she knew that I had offered her a new man and she wanted to make sure that he was well taken care of when he was on her property in her city. They sent me a picture of them in front of their home group. I sat next to that guy last night, five years of continuous sobriety. I'm not saying I have anything at all to do with that, but I'm going to tell you, the newcomer packet doesn't get you five years sobriety. So there are people here tonight that are, uh, maybe this is their first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) There are plenty of good AA members in this audience. I promise you that. (laughs) 
And so, you know, I have a hard time explaining to people in AA what Alcoholics Anonymous is, but can you take a shot at telling people from your perspective, how do you see AA? What is Alcoholics Anonymous as an entity? And what are the 12 steps about? Mm, I think that 12-step deal is based on what our own personal reconciliation has been with the program. I think generally we've accepted Certainly since April of 1939, we have accepted that the first 164 pages of our book are the recovery program. We generally accept that that is so. And for people who may not know the, the book... The, the book's name is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's how our society got its name. We named the book first. We were going to name the book The Way Out. I just made a big book history talk last week, so this is probably not a good time for me to get... You know, remember, I'm a Wikipedia guy. <laughs> Don't let me get way down in there. Anyway, we're going to name it The Way Out. The majority of the fellowship at the time, 70 people on a really good day, really the majority wanted The Way Out. So we sent a guy named Fitz M., our southern friend, right? The guy who said, who can, how can you say there is no God? Clang. That guy. We sent him to the Library of Congress to do some research, and he found out there were already 12 books named The Way Out. There wasn't a single book named Alcoholics Anonymous. So... <laughs> We named the book Alcoholics Anonymous. So the minority opinion was we're going to name it Alcoholics Anonymous. The reason we call it the big book is because we sold the book for $3.50. In 1939, that'd be like $67 today. So with the fake corporation that we created, Bill and Hank created the fake corporation to generate the book Alcoholics Anonymous, never did exist, works publishing. We went to Cornwall Press, didn't have, they didn't have two nickels to rub together, and we convinced this guy to run 5,000 copies of the book on the best quality paper in the shop. And that paper made a book that looked like this. And that's why it was called The Big Book, because we wanted to make sure that drunks knew that they were getting something for their $3.50. <laughs> so your question about, you know, what are the steps? Well, I mean, I think the steps are certainly what we see when Bill said he was expanding on the word-of-mouth program, which is all we had before we thought that we wanted to somehow get a little more consistency in our message. But we're a 24-7 society of folks. We're a society of people that want to be 3 o'clock in the morning people. What are 3 o'clock in the morning people? That's what I asked when I was new, and it was first phrased to me. What are those people? Who are those people, and how will I know who they are? And my sponsor said, just watch. Watch those people. They're the people who are going to come early and stay late. They're the people who are going to bring the casserole to the group anniversary. They're the people who are going to drive across town or across the county to pick up somebody that's new because they feel like if they got the call, it's their responsibility. Those people, the 3 o'clock in the morning people. And I don't believe that Alcoholics Anonymous in 2019 is fundamentally any different than it was in 1939. And if you give me two minutes, I want to talk about the map. Bunches of us have been to New York, to the General Service Office. Bunches of us have been up to Stepping Stones, which is Lois, Lois's house. She let Bill live there, but it's Lois's house. And then you can walk out the back door and the screened-in porch, and everybody wants to go to Wits End, which is that old cinder block building that's in the backyard of Stepping Stones, where Bill wrote the 12 and 12. He wrote AA Comes of Age. He did a lot of writing out there. You can sit on Bill's couch, you can sit at Bill's desk, you can have a picture taken, cigarette burns all over the desk, and all this other kind of mess. 
And we have an archive today that probably has upwards of five or six or seven million pieces of material in it. Not tangible things, but lots of paper. History of everything that has to do with AA from the very beginning. So after the book went out, and of course didn't sell, and a couple of years later and the book didn't sell, and old Jack Alexander came to blow the lid off Alcoholics Anonymous and actually came to AA meetings. There weren't any open and closed meetings back then, just AA meetings. And we had a lead, 10 or 15, 20 minutes. You had a 10 or 15 or 20 minute lead. So Jack came in because he could not believe that we were running this scam and saying that we could share experience, strength, and hope and actually stay sober and get somebody else to sober up. I mean, he did not come with a good feeling about us when he came. And he talked to us at the coffee bar. He did the things that we did. Think about the energy and enthusiasm that was in this room tonight before this meeting ever started. That kind of deal. And Jack felt it. He saw it and he felt it. And he knew what recovery in AA looked like and he felt like. And he went home and he wrote his article. And then the lid blew off of AA. A non-alcoholic, all of them really non-alcoholics, non-alcoholics are what seeded this deal. Non-alcoholics are what helped us to begin to grow, get on what Bill would call the world wires. So we get a letter from Little Rock, Arkansas, and the guy from Little Rock, Arkansas wrote and said, I heard about this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous from the Saturday Evening Post. What can you do for me? And the non-alcoholic secretary who had typed the manuscript of the book, she made sure she wrote the guy back a personal letter. And perhaps we wheedled a dollar out of him, perhaps we didn't, and we sent him a copy of the book. And maybe if that thing gelled, as Dr. Bob would say, within the next 10 or 15, 20 or 30 days, we got a second letter from Little Rock. We got the second letter from Little Rock, and the letter said, we had our first meeting last night. There were two sober and one drinking. The non-alcoholic secretary of Alcoholics Anonymous took one of those old pens with the plastic round head on it, and she looked at a big map, which is in the back of the room that is wit's end, just like that map that you used to all have in homeroom if you were of a certain age when we were in elementary school. And that old laminated map, she took that pen and she stuck it in Little Rock because we knew there was AA activity there. There is now Alcoholics Anonymous activity we know in 170 countries around the world. The book Alcoholics Anonymous been translated into 72 languages. The last translation, purely verbal, it's Navajo, which is not a written language. There are 14 CDs and every single one of the AA members in this room tonight has a part of that. We are members of home groups who know that we shave off a little portion of the spiritual nature of the dollar in the basket and we let it float all the way down the food chain to the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous knows about the need of the Navajo and uses the collective contributions, spiritual in nature, of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous to put a round, plastic-headed pin in the Navajo Nation in 2018, in 2018. We are exactly the same society that we have always been. We need to avail ourselves of what we call new technology, but we have to do it within the framework of the traditions. We don't have any rules. We expect that the spiritual nature of the 36 principles by which we subscribe will keep us inside the bumper lanes. 
I am no longer a guy who needs recognition for something that I'm not doing. Look at my one-year chip. I celebrate at my home group so other people know that in spite of me, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous can still work. That's not my medallion. It's one that I'm allowed to carry just as a marker of the fact that through the gift of God's grace, I have been able to step outside of that ugly, caustic, entitled, selfish human being that came to Alcoholics Anonymous and actually do something for somebody else. I love it. All right. So, Sarah, Sarah, you and somebody else. So speaking of the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, we're we're streaming live right now, uh, audio only. There are people that are listening right now, and if there's any questions, uh, Preston, that may be coming through uh, on that chat, please let me know. And Sarah, for those of you who have a question at this point, for Mr. Jimmy D, I don't want to take all of his time. I want to let you all ask him questions as well. So is there anybody who has a question, AA-related, that you would like to ask Jimmy? Right over here. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Magdalena. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Magdalena. Thank you. And I wanted to ask you about spiritual awakening. Um, How do you describe it? What was it like for you um, to have a spiritual awakening? I think it was really important for me and is continuing to be important for me that we have the appendix in the back of the book that was added with the second edition talking about the nature of spiritual experiences, the collective experience of the fellowship. From 39 to 55, when the second edition was published, people thought they needed the hot flash like what Bill had. They felt like they were kind of second-class members of AA because they had not had this profound spiritual awakening. Now, if I had God on the answering machine or lightning bolts coming down from the sky, like when I took the third step prayer on my knees with my sponsor, I'd probably had a heart attack and died, right? I, I mean, the process was very slow over an extended period of time. Here's what happened for me that was good, spiritual awakening. The spiritual awakenings have all been of an educational variety, and I am so thankful that I was told to go to lots of speaker meetings when I was newly sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody ever told me not to say anything, but they knew that I really did not have anything of substance, uh, recovery-wise, to share, so I sat in a lot of speaker meetings. And I heard your stories had nothing to do with delivery, whether you talk for 10 minutes or two hours, but had everything to do with the fact that I could not analyze or divide anybody's story. You couldn't get here from there on your own. Wasn't possible. So the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as described through members of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, are certainly were the spiritual awakening that I've found. And then at about maybe 15 or 16 months of sobriety, I, uh, I really realized that uh, it was God as I understood God. And, uh, and probably at around five years of sobriety, uh, as certainly as a grown man, um, just driving home from, uh, from a weekend conference uh, for the very first time. I mean, I felt something, and it wasn't like I heard anybody's voice, but for the very first time I thought, you know what, 
my mother would be entirely okay with this. And that was a big deal for me. It was a big deal for me. So thank you for your question. I know they're not used to this. Nobody's used to asking questions after the speaker is finished, but uh, does anybody else? I've got plenty here. I just don't want to hog all this time. Think about that, and that was like old school, right? I mean, I wasn't in any of those meetings, but they're aptly described. That's what we used to do. Can you imagine Sarah. 15 minutes and people ask you questions? <laughs> we got another one over here. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm not an alcoholic. Hey, Jody. Hi, Jenny. Were any of your family members alcoholics? Not, not uh, identified as such. But when I was a little boy, people drank. My grandmother, all through my life, my grandmother drank. My grandmother smoked and drank. And here's how they did it. A couple of times a week, they'd either go down to that card room at the club or she'd have all those old bags over at the house and sometimes there'd be 15 or 20 or 25 of them. I mean, it was a herd of them. And they would sit at these four top card tables and they'd either play bridge or canasta or sometimes poker, <laughs> sometimes five card poker, just depend. I mean, these were not shrinking violet women, right? I mean, these were not little gray haired, mousy little women. I mean, these were, they had fortitude and substance. <laughs> and they would have a little cocktail, you know, like a what was not even like a rocks glass, like a, I don't know, like a runt rocks glass. And there would be a pack of Parliament cigarettes on every single one of those four top card tables. And each one of those old women would, and they were probably in their 40s when I was a kid, right? But they were old women. They'd have one Parliament cigarette, I mean, one Parliament cigarette, and they would have that drink. Now, a couple of them that they worried about driving to and from, they'd have a second drink. But I didn't know anything about drinking until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to meet my people here, and my people get a sense of ease and comfort just driving to the liquor store, because we know relief from everything is in the liquor store. It's on the way. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do one thing and then we'll wrap it up. I'd like you to address those hospital visits that you had right before you entered the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because <laughs> you, like, you like me talking about getting all beat up. <laughs> yeah, I do. All right, we got to do a five-minute version because, you know, our butts yeah. are trained for an hour. I mean, this has this got to wrap up pretty quick. I don't want to make any enemies in here tonight. We get great ideas. What does books say that, you know, all these masterful ideas are formed when we're, when we're drunk? And, uh, and so it was over the course of many years, but, you know, we always talk about the last two or three years of our drinking. And I'd been living in this corporate furnished apartment for, they thought I was going to stay six months. I was probably in my, I think it was in my fifth year. And, you know, over the course of all those years, I bought pictures and stuff to hang on the walls. I finally, I think, got a set of silverware. But I was sitting there one night, and I was pulling on a bottle of gin, and I looked around all those pictures just lined up where they needed to hang on the floor. They'd been there. They're covered with dust. They'd been there three or four years. And I thought, because I was pretty drunk. I wasn't over-the-top drunk, but I was pretty drunk. I was drunk enough to get great ideas. 
And I thought, you know what you need to do is you need to hang those pictures. If you hang those pictures, your whole life would change. If you just hang those pictures, you'd feel so much better about yourself and everybody else. And so I decided I needed to hang those pictures. And so, you know, drunk doesn't have any kind of equipment that's the right kind of equipment in the house. It's just not going to happen. I didn't have a hammer or anything like a hammer. And I finally found a big old wood nail, uh, which is not for hanging pictures. And, uh, and I did have a, a, a carving knife. So my carving knife's going to be my, my hammer, and I've got this wood nail, and so I take me a big old pull off that gin and jelly beans or whatever I was drinking, and I held that nail between these two fingers, and, uh, and, and I pulled back with that carving knife, and I missed that nail. <laughs> and I popped these two fingers just as hard as I could possibly pop them, and I mean, I heard them crack, and it hurt. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's really going to probably be swollen tomorrow. And I didn't worry about it. I finished off that gin. And, uh, and the next morning, my hand was as big as my head, and I was worried about it. So I got half drunk, and I drove myself down to Medical City Hospital in Dallas. And I walked in the emergency room under my own steam, and my hand was kind of limping down like this. And the nurse was the most beautiful woman. She came out, and she's the most pleasant person cooperation professional community, right? She walks me back to the emergency room and she says, oh, we're going to have to do some x-rays. It looks like you've busted both of those knuckles. What in the world happened? And I said, kitchen accident, just a kitchen accident. And, uh, and so she took a little bit of blood and she left, get me ready for the x-ray. Within two minutes, there's a herd of white coats coming in that emergency room. There's eight <laughs> or 10 of them. They say, how much do you drink? When do you drink? Why do you drink? What do you drink? We just whirled your blood and your point two two at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And uh, <laughs> now on and on and on about albumin levels and liver enzymes and this and that and the other thing. And finally I said, stop, I'm here for fingers. I just need you <laughs> to handle the fingers. So they got me x-rayed, they got me splinted up. They told me I couldn't drive home on my own steam. We know how well that went over, right? So I escaped. <laughs> I escaped. <laughs> probably three or four days later it was certainly within the same week and I've got a hat you know I've got these all bandaged up and whatever and the freezer door my freezer door on my refrigerator wouldn't stay shut it hadn't shut probably in three years out of five I was on vodka that night and vodka makes me disturbed about imperfections just any kind of imperfections <laughs> And as I get further and further in that vodka, I realize that I am probably wasting no telling how many hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in electricity so I can basically refrigerate my place off of my freezer. And, uh, and I start looking for this, that, the other to kind of fix that stripping on the inside of that freezer. And I get really frustrated because you know what I do is I pull what little stripping was on there off and now the damn thing won't even close at all. And, uh, and so I just got mad and I picked up this left arm and I went down with this elbow because I was just going to pop it closed. And you know, I hit the lip of that freezer door and there's steel in a freezer. And, uh, and so it just shaved the end of this elbow bone clean off. It hurt. <laughs> I finished that vodka. Next morning, I woke up, and my arm was as big as my torso, and I was worried. <laughs> so I took three or four shots, which is how we get up in the morning, and I thought, I better go to the emergency room, see what in the world might happen. And now I wasn't going back to Medical City. That's where they interrogated me about the fingers. 
I drove further on down to Presbyterian Hospital and went to the emergency room in there, and a different girl, even more beautiful than the one I'd seen at Medical City. She's the most pleasant person in the world. She saw the fingers, and she said, is something going on with that? I said, no, there's an elbow problem now. And <laughs> same deal happened. Within five minutes, a herd of white coats wanted to interrogate you about this or that or the other thing, and uh, finally they put me in a half cast, and I had a sling around my neck, so I've got these fingers in this splint and this bandaging, and then I've got this arm in a half cast, and it's slung around my deal, and then... You know, I'd leave the office about 3 o'clock in the afternoon most days because I was so sick I needed a drink bad. And I'd sit in the car and I'd take pulls, I don't know, make myself a little hot cocktail, never any ice, you know, maybe bourbon, some kind of dark liquor you can drink hot. And uh, I drank in the garage for, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes, got me a fairly comfortable buzz on, just enough so I could get the key in the ignition and actually hold on to the wheel. And so I lived about six miles from my office building and I took some really good pulls off of that drink on the way home, and I almost got home, and I had a flat tire. Now, I'm not drunk, but I got a good buzz on. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to get out, and I'm going to have to change this tire with this hand like this and this arm like this. And I got out, and I finally got the jack out of the trunk, and I got that tire jacked up pretty good. And I got that wheel mounted on those lug nuts, and I started dropping that jack, and I realized it was wobbly on those lug nuts. It wasn't mounted like it needed to be mounted, and I probably couldn't even get home on it. And I just, you know, I'm thinking, you know, the world is just, it is just crapping on me one time after another time. And as we do, I got a little bit too frustrated, and so I turned around, and I kicked that wheel with my left heel. And I missed that tire, and I hit that wheel, and when I hit that wheel, I felt this whole foot just kind (laughs) of shudder. But I hobbled back into the car and pulled off on the side of the forest lane, and I finished that pint of bourbon or whatever it was I was nursing, and I was pretty good and drunk. By the time I got home, I was able to get in my house and, uh, and get good and drunk. Next morning, I could get my leg out of the bed. And, uh, and so I remembered what happened at Medical City with the fingers, and I remember what happened at Presbyterian with the arms, so I drove all the way across town to the osteopathic hospital. And I got in there, and they said, oh, my God, you've broken four or five bones in that foot, and they put me in a cast and a big boot up to my ankle. And So, final story, real quick. Guy, I was a fraternity brother of mine from Southern Methodist University. He had not seen me since we finished school in 87. I actually got a degree from that place. I try not to drive close to their campus because I think they made a mistake. Um, Anyway, he had gotten married and was living in New York City and they were coming to Dallas. So, of course, you know, big, you got a big dog it. So I'm going to meet him for dinner at the mansion. So here I walk into the mansion and I mean, I'm looking like the Frankenstein monster. I got that boot. I got this fingers. I got this deal. I'm going to meet his new wife, and she is just blanched. I mean, I have never seen anybody lose all the color in their face that quick, and and so they escaped as quickly as they possibly could, and I got good and drunk, right? I found some people that I probably never see or hear from again. They became my best friends, stayed out till two or three o'clock in the morning. When I rolled into the house, I was trying to get that key in that door, and you know how many times you just tried to really aim that key, you hold it with both (laughs) hands trying to get that key in that front door, and you finally have that feeling of success because you know you got a pee so bad you can't stand it, and you don't want to pee on yourself one more time. You're trying to get inside, and I turn that key, and when I turn that key, I push that door, and I flew 
into my living room and I had a huge iron coffee table then. First, first piece of furniture went away when I got sober. <laughs> and I hit the corner of that coffee table and I want you to know I fought that coffee table. I gave that coffee table everything I could give it. I mean, I got all tangled. Drunk can get tangled up and stuff. Can't get tangled up in any other time. And I mean, it laid me out. And I laid there and bled for, I don't know, a couple of hours. And when I woke up, I couldn't see out of my left eye. And I thought, oh my God, Jimmy, you've done it now. You're 31 years old. You've got very few prospects to begin with. There's not a woman in the city of Dallas who'd go out with a skinny 31-year-old one-eyed guy. <laughs> the first thing I thought of, if you think you put your eye out and you need a drink, makes perfect sense to my people. So I went to that bathroom and I went to the pantry and took a pull out of whatever kind of bottle I had up there in that pantry and I went to see the damage that had been done and, uh, and I want you to know that this about six months before I came to you and when we talk about life being unmanageable, this is as good as it got for me before I got here. I had not punctured out my eyeball on the corner of that coffee table like I originally thought. I just split my head open so bad up here that this flap had fallen down over my eye. Now I had pesky doctors for these fingers and pesky doctors for this elbow and pesky doctors for this ankle that was in a boot and I was having none of it. And my grandmother was born and raised outside of Wiley, Texas on a big huge cotton farm and she had four brothers and every one of those four brothers when it started getting just a little bit cool they had to wrap pipes. I mean, they all lived in the city of Dallas, but they believed that they needed to wrap pipes. And the way they wrapped pipes was with duct tape. Duct tape, those old men said, fixes everything. So I held the two pieces of my head together and I just slapped a big piece of duct tape on there. Now, drunk or sober, we know it's not a good idea to put duct tape on a wound that probably needed, I don't know, 20 or 25 stitches. And you gotta be drunk to put duct tape on that kind of wound. But you gotta be wasted to get that duct tape off. <laughs> and anybody in my home group that knew me when I came to AA will promise you the first six months I walked around AA with one eyebrow. <laughs> All right, thank That's you that. so much, Jimmy. All right, thank you for listening. All right, so, <laughs> Wendy and Chrissy. All right, so what we're going to do now is, uh, first of all, is there anybody here who has changed their mind and would like a desire chip? Anybody else? All right. In keeping with the seven tradition. We're going to pass the baskets. If y'all could uh, just uh, pass those baskets around. And just so you all know that where this money is going to, it, it, this is a break-even event. Basically, I'm going to give it to Preston and our musicians up here nice. uh, and pay for some of the refreshments, and that's where it's going, all right? So in keeping with the seven tradition, each AA group should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, so we're going to pass the bucket. In our experience you will find that communicating with a sponsor can be a vital part of your participation in the Alcoholics Anonymous program. Anyone available to be a sponsor, please raise your hand. If you're looking for a sponsor, please see one of these people after the meeting. And just before, I need to give out some recognitions here real quick. First of all, if you volunteered tonight, will you please stand? 
Thank you. Let's give a hand. Oh, I know there's more than that. Anyway. It took a lot of people to volunteer to put this on. Uh, once again, the newcomer chair people are Chad. Where's Chad? Chad. Chad. There you go, Chad. And Denise right here for the women. I want to tell my family that I love them very much. So some of you uh, get to hear them on the podcast who have not uh, been around before. That's, and that's my mother-in-law right back there at that table. Wave, Sue. Mm. All right. Uh, I want to recognize also Cassandra. Where are you, Cassandra? If you ever look at all those uh, uh, Facebook posts and Instagram posts, she is the one who does all nice. of them, and I'm so thankful that she helped to spread the message of that. I want to thank Grace Avenue United Methodist Church for letting us have this space right here. I want to thank Preston, who's back there doing all that stuff with the PowerPoint and uh, all the uh, audio technical stuff. Obviously, we have Wendy and Chrissy up here. Let's give them another hand. And Mr. Jimmy D. Thank you again. All right, go ahead and play. Oh, they're going to play a song. They will do the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll get out of here, all right? Y'all can sing this too. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. So let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. And when the broken-hearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer, let it be. But though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see, there will be an answer, let it be. So let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be. There will be an answer, let it be. So let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. So let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. And when the night is cloudy, there is still a light that shines on me. Shine until tomorrow, let it be. 
I wake up to the sound of music. Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. 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 There will be an answer. Let it be. So let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. All right, let's circle up and do the Lord's Prayer. And once again, from my heart to yours, thank you so much for coming out tonight. I so appreciate it. Okay. Whose Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Don't if you don't. All right. was such a good time. It was a blast. I hope you enjoyed it as much by listening in as we did in person. All right, now on to some listener feedback. Tom sent us a message through the Sober Speak Facebook page, and he said, amazing podcast. Well, thank you, Tom. Double exclamation point. He says, thank you so much for doing this podcast. It has been an inspiration to me on my journey into sobriety and becoming myself. So many gems that have really helped me to get to what AA is all about. So grateful for what you and your guests do for all of us. Well, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate that. Jason writes in and he says, hey, John, I love your show and I listen to it every day, three exclamation points. He says, it, uh, it is, as you say, my meeting between meetings. I especially love the episodes with David G and would love to, and would love to have my information passed on to him. I really related to his share and would love to be able to call on him someday just to get some advice or email at least. Anyway, I understand if that's not possible, but please pass on my my information anyways. I also love listening to Gary K. Like you said on your podcast, I can listen to those guys talk all day. Thank you for what you do, and thank you for all the people that volunteered to be on your show and keep up the good work. It's definitely helping me since I work out on the road a lot, and I can't always get to a regular meetings. And having familiar voices is a great comfort. 
Well, I get it. I did pass on to your information to Mr. David G, and I'll get out of the middle and let you two guys uh, uh, communicate, but I'm so glad that we can be a small part of your journey in recovery. Laura writes in from Al-Anon, and she says, Hello, John. Thank you so much for your service. I'm a big fan of Soberspeak, having listened to all available episodes. Well, that's uh, that's quite a few there, Ms. Laura. She said, I recently heard Brenda J's talk on God and grace, so moving and funny at the same time. She is a gem of a speaker one of many on your podcast that I have enjoyed. I'm an Al-Anon member who appreciates hearing the struggles, strengths, and hopes of alcoholics. Listening to your podcasts, I am gaining better understanding of their side of the story, and I find my relationships with them are becoming more compassionate and loving, at least some of the time. Your interviewing style is casual and full of joy. I can see you love what you do, so many of us love it too. I am, for one, so grateful for you to bringing these speakers to us, Laura. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate it, and I do enjoy what I'm doing, and it is a a labor of love. Um, you know, I've said many times, uh, I get to go to meetings with some really wonderful people, and I get to hear wonderful folks share in meetings, and, you know, my hope through this thing was just to be able to get those people's stories out to people like you, Laura. Jean writes in, she's another Al-Anon member. She says, hi, John. I live in Watertown, New York, which is about an hour north of Syracuse and about a half hour south of the Canadian border. Well, you are way up there, Miss Jean. She says, I am a member of Al-Anon and my husband is my qualifier. I've been going to Al-Anon meetings now for over three years Uh, Because my husband's drinking turned into depression and anxiety, and I realized that I was the one that needed help, exclamation point. I married my husband 30 years ago, and he has always drank, sometimes more than others, and he is still drinking even now while taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. He still doesn't think he has a drinking problem, but my Al-Anon meetings have helped me to be happy whether he's drinking or not, and have helped me understand the disease of alcoholism. I found the Recovery Podcast this summer, which led me to the Sever Speak Podcast, and I have found both of these very helpful between meetings. There is so much for me to learn about with the disease and how it has impacted my life over 30 years of marriage to an alcoholic. I really appreciate your show and all the guests and the stories that they share. Thank you for all you do, Gene. Well, thank you, Gene, for writing in uh, uh, almost to the Canadian border, Gene, and uh, I appreciate it. Keep me posted. I hope you're Husband, as I'm sure you do, uh, finds this uh, program some days, but uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Ari writes in, A-R-I, Ari. She says, hi, John. I live in Oklahoma City. My sober date is 2 February 15th of 2014. I got sober in Indianapolis, and I fell completely in love with the rooms there. When I moved back to Oklahoma after being sober 
just under a year. I found the program here didn't fill my heart the way the ones in Indianapolis did. So I found Sober Speak to fill that space. Thank you for all you do, Ari. Well, Ari, I completely get it. I've moved around myself during sobriety and Sometimes you just got to keep going back and uh, uh, hopefully you will find that same sort of uh, uh, vibe, if you want, if you will, uh, that you had in the rooms there in Indianapolis soon. Victoria writes in, she says, I am in Al-Anon and really struggling to, quote, accept, unquote, rather than admit I am powerless. I can admit it. But I need to accept the chaos and wreckage that was caused by my role with my qualifiers, understanding that as an Al-Anoner, I do have something. Uh, I do have some responsibility to bear. You know, I'm just I'm pausing because I don't know if I've ever heard the term Al-Anoner before, but uh, now I have. Nonetheless, I just need to be able to turn my will and my life over. Ugh, letting go of the wheel is so hard when you have when when you've had to navigate the storm so often. I found sober speak when in desperation for a meeting, I searched podcasts and it was the first thing that caught my attention. I am now a devoted listener. Love the show! Exclamation point. P.S. I live in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and my home group is in Ashland, Wisconsin, 250 miles away. My goodness, that is quite a way to go, Victoria. But I'm glad you have a home group, and I can tell that uh, you have uh, plugged in and are using Al-Anon to the best of your ability, and I'm so glad you're doing that. Andrew writes in, he says, I live in Denver, and I am in early recovery, and my name is Andrew S. I found Soberspeak randomly searching podcasts, keywords, sober, and AA. I like yours the best I've heard so far. You have some interesting and funny people in Texas. (laughs) Well, yeah, we do have some interesting uh, uh, and funny people in Texas. I can almost picture the trailer at your home group. Yes, it is a trailer and it is not uh, a sight for sore eyes. I'll put it this way, put it that way. And he says, anyway, he says, maybe next year, God willing, I can see you in Crested Butte. I would absolutely love that. In fact, uh, I got to meet a listener uh, in Crested Butte this year. It was absolutely amazing to be able to uh, spend time with her and her boyfriend and her son. Uh, I loved it. Anyway, uh, He said, so I had 26 days and then went on a camping trip over the long weekend and made an intentional decision to drink. I thought I could do the amnesty week thing. Oh, yeah. You're not the first one to get caught up in that. Anyway, he says, I found I really didn't enjoy it and I'm disappointed that I gave up my one month chip. It has been two days again, and I just went to a meeting. Cunning, baffling, and powerful is all I can say. Why do we think we can drink like non-alcoholics? Like a lot of newcomers, I'm struggling with the God-slash-higher-power thing. I know the the saying, fake it till I make it, that strategy, but it is difficult. I just read chapter four today about the agnostic and it says an alcoholic death or a spiritual path. That is scary for a new guy. 
One day at a time, I keep coming back. I do have a sponsor, but to be honest, I think I chose him because I knew I could manipulate him and was using the program to justify and manage my drinking. I know that won't work, and uh, but it's amazing. After you get a few weeks and you're sleeping okay, eating okay, your GI system is okay, etc., and you figure, quote, I can have one. Oh, unquote. Forgetting all the physical and emotional pain you went through to get to that point, then of course, one leads to a week or two solid. I get it. Golly, I get it. Crazy disease, Andrew says. I can only imagine the courage Bill W. and the other crusaders had to go through stigma-wise, at least now it is generally accepted. Now, not only did they have the foresight to write the 164 pages that will last forever, but they also had the courage to put it out there in an effort to help others. Thanks for all you do, John. And if this makes any sense, feel free to share on listener feedback, Andrew. Well, Andrew, it makes a ton of sense. And I thank you so much for your vulnerability. I I, I do. Oh, gosh. Uh, that vulnerability will help you tremendously in the long run. So I read it because I know that it will help people. And once again, Andrew, thank you for writing in. Sean D writes in and he says, Hey, John, my name is Sean D and I am coming up on eight months sober and grateful for every single day. I love your podcast and I listen to it between my Meetings. I have a service position at my home group and I love them all like family. I would love to be part of your secret Facebook group. God bless Sean D. Well, we got him an invite out and Sean D is in that secret Facebook group. Um, and by the way, just as a reminder, in case you didn't hear this, the other times I've talked about it, if you want to be part of the secret Facebook group, send me your email associated to your, uh, a Facebook account to John J O H N at soberspeak.com. And you can contact me there about anything else. Well, that's the end of this episode. As I said earlier, this is the longest episode we've ever had because I wanted to keep all of this intact. I wanted to have the entire episode of Sober Speak Live from start to finish. Anyway, God bless you. Love you. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'll try to make it back next week. Bye-bye now.